Well, good morning. It's great to see you. I trust you are well. I trust if you're not well, you'll let us know and we can pray for you. Um, I want to do things a little bit different this morning. I want to mix things up a little bit, um, perhaps from the, the, the standard preach this morning. I want to teach you um, how to fight. Can I have a volunteer from the congregation? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it is interesting who raised their hands, though. <laughs> well, I'm going to teach you to fight. Um, I'm going to teach you to fight like the Apostle Paul fought. Because in this chapter that we're going to look at together this morning, um, Paul is in full fight mode. And he was something of a born fighter, was Paul. I don't know how much you know about his history or background, but Paul was not the sort of man to take nonsense from anyone. In his younger days, Paul had been made aware of a man, a man who um, started a revolution, a movement, if you will, and um, that movement was called The Way. And then the, those that were belonged to that movement, they called themselves the followers of The Way, and they claimed, they claimed to have discovered a saviour or a messiah. But Paul, Paul was a clever man. He was well-educated. He knew his scriptures well, and he knew that this man that they spoke of was no Messiah. He was no Savior. I mean, how could he possibly be? His revolution, his movement had ended in his execution by the Roman Empire. What kind of a revolution was that? He didn't save anyone. He didn't even save himself. Except that the followers of this way were now claiming that their leader had actually saved himself, had actually risen from the dead. And they claimed that those who followed him would also be saved from death. And Paul had witnessed, he'd seen one of these followers, a guy called Stephen, have the audacity to stand before the high council, the Sanhedrin, and make these ridiculous claims. And then he watched as they became angry and they stoned Stephen to death. And it was in that moment that Paul decided to make it his mission to hunt down and destroy these followers of the way. And so he goes from house to house and he drags people out onto the street and he tears them down and he carts them off to jail. And as I say, Paul was a good fighter. He fought hard and long and he was the one who sought the authority from the high priest to expand the campaign. No longer just in Jerusalem, but in Damascus as well. But it was on his way to Damascus that Paul's war against the followers of the way hit a snag. You see, much to his surprise, he ran into their leader, the very one who had been executed by the Romans. Awkward. <laughs> the one that they called Messiah. And you see, in that moment, Paul's life was forever changed. And he, he adopted a new mission. Instead of trying to destroy the followers of the way, he began instead to fight to introduce people to the way and the truth and the life. He began to fight to introduce people to Jesus. And he fought hard. He fought harder than he ever had done before. But what he discovered as he did this was that 
the tools, the tactics, the weapons, the things that he had used in his previous war were no good in this new battle that he found himself in. And if he was going to win this battle, he was going to have to change his tactics. So this morning as we read this next chapter, we continue our study in 2 Corinthians. I want us to look at some of these new tactics, some of these new weapons that Paul uses and think about them and consider how we might use them for the battles that we find ourselves in as well. How's that for a juicy intro? All right? Good. So open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you haven't done so already, if you haven't got your Bibles, I will stick the words <coughs> up on screen. Um, just in case you were uh, unsure, any, all that stuff I've just told you about the Apostle Paul is 100% true. Um, you can read it for yourself, um, particularly uh, in Acts chapter 7 through 9, and I encourage you to do so. Um, and whilst Paul's battle against the followers of the way had only made it halfway to Damascus, this new battle um, went much further, in fact, all the way to Rome. And on his journey, one of the places he spent the most time was the city of Corinth in ancient Greece. And he actually uh, lived and worked there for around 18 months, and you can read about that in Acts 18. And while he was there, he encourages many, many people to become followers of Jesus. And he eventually leaves to tell more people about Jesus, because for Paul, there was always this region beyond, and I'll come back to that a bit later. But he kept in touch with the believers at Corinth, and he visited them, and he wrote to them. And if you've been with us at all in the past 12 weeks, you'll know um, that because we've been studying this particular letter, 2 Corinthians, together. So Paul was not with the Corinthians at the moment. And in his absence, other leaders, other people had arrived from the region of Judea. And these other leaders um, had spoken to the Corinthians, and, and the Corinthians had become um, less invested in their founder, less convinced perhaps by Paul as a person. And they, some had begun to reject him, and they'd begun to reject some of his teachings. And they found these new leaders to be um, more impressive, better speakers, more dynamic. They had better haircuts. They were more um, enigmatic or whatever. And so as Paul writes to them in this letter, and particularly in this chapter 10, it's his hope um, that, that, that those that have perhaps begun to misunderstand Paul will come to see him as Paul sees himself. And Paul sees himself first and foremost as someone who is captive to King Jesus. Someone who is completely and utterly sold out for Jesus. And in Ephesians 3, in fact, he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. Sold out for Jesus for you, for your benefit. <clears throat> and of course, Paul's fear is that as the Corinthians reject him, they will um, begin to reject the things that he's taught them, the things that he has told them, um, and they will begin to reject Christ. And so with all of that in mind, let's dive in to chapter 10. <clears throat> this is what he writes. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when, uh, towards you when away. I beg that when I come to you, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, 
who think that we live by the standards of the world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedience to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Let's just pause there for a moment or two. And when you read this at home, I do encourage you to use the air quotes for timid and bold, uh, just because I feel it injects the implied sarcasm um, in the text. And there's sarcasm there because Paul is beginning to answer some of the criticisms that the Corinthians have leveled against him. And one of the things that makes this part of the letter perhaps a little bit tricky to understand is that once again we only have Paul's response. We don't know exactly what's being said to him. We don't even know how that information has come to Paul. We don't know if they they wrote directly to him with these complaints or or perhaps Paul had a conversation with one of his traveling companions. You might remember a few weeks ago um, we spoke about how it was probably this chap called Titus who delivered the letter to the Corinthians, this painful letter. And you can imagine Titus getting back and, and Paul being like, oh, hey, Titus, how did it go? What did they say? What did they, what did they think of my letter? Did they, did they like it? Did they understand it? And Titus being like, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Paul says, come on, man, give me, some, give me the deets. Let me know what's going on. And then Titus would sort of mumble, what? Spit it out, man. At least they said you're not, <clears throat> you're not that bold when you're face to face. What do you mean? Well, you know, I think you're kind of a bit timid, Paul, a bit, of a, a bit of a wimp, you know? And like if you'd been there, you wouldn't have actually said those things. What? <laughs> Fetch my quill, Titus. <laughs> Now, just to clarify, I don't know that that conversation actually happened. That's that's my imagination running away with me. But my point is there's an element of detective work that we need to do in the text today. So Paul hears these things, either in writing or through someone else, and he responds. And and like I say, Paul is not one to shy away from confrontation. No siree, he is a fighter. And he knows that this section, these next few chapters, this next part of the letter is going to be tricky. It's going to be hard to write. And so right at the beginning here, he draws his first two weapons. He says, by the humility and the gentleness of Christ. I'll tell you what this reminded me of. Did anyone, um, when they were younger, ever watch a cartoon called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? Just one. (laughs) Two. Okay, you're being honest now. Good. You know when he's about to go into battle and he yells, By the power of Grayskull! I have the... No? Yep, good. Okay. And he pulls his sword out and his shirt rips off and and all that. Um, Well, Paul starts by saying, by the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Humility and gentleness. Not two characteristics commonly associated with confrontation, right? But definitely two characteristics that Paul had learnt from Jesus. You know, Jesus says of himself in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, 
and you'll find rest for your soul. And you know, Paul, he's under attack. People are complaining about him. People are dragging his name through the mud. People are trying to tear him down and reduce him in the estimation of others. And his response, his first response, is humility and gentleness. That's kind of amazing, right? When someone criticizes you, I mean, let's make it personal for a minute. Um, What's your first response? Is it humility and gentleness? Or something else? Do we perhaps fight criticism with criticism? Do we fight fire with fire? Well, what do they know anyway? (laughs) What do you say about my hair? Maybe you should look in the mirror first. I wouldn't pay them any attention. But you know, the trouble with fighting fire with fire is that everybody gets burned. Paul explains this principle to his protege, Timothy, in his second letter to him, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. This is what he says. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. To be able to teach, be patient with difficult people, gently instruct those who oppose the truth. And perhaps God will change people's hearts, and they will learn the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. And you see, when we come back at people with criticism, when we face criticism and we respond with criticism, all we're doing in that moment is helping the enemy. We're fighting with the wrong weapons. And so Paul wants us to know that we need these new weapons in order to break free from these traps. So he continues in verse 2, doesn't he? I beg you, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be so bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of the world. And then, so using our detective hat again, we find another criticism here. It seems that some people, they think that Paul is too worldly. And this second criticism is, is linked to the first because they think he's only prepared to call them out in writing, in person. He's nothing like that. And Paul wants them to know that he would never ever write anything that he is not prepared to say in person, to say face to face. He begs them, when I get there, I don't want to have to be as bold in person, but I will be if I need to be. You remember, Paul's not timid. Remember his background. And if I can just step away from the narrative slightly for a moment, I think there's a really important lesson for us here, a really good principle for life, and that is to never write anything that we're not prepared to say face-to-face. Now, admittedly, it's rare that we send letters today, but we do write a lot. We send text messages, we send emails, we use Twitter, we use Facebook, we post comments online. The younger generations particularly, but, but not exclusively. And I think the challenge for us is, are we the same people in our writing as we are in real life? Because if we aren't, then all we're really doing is opening ourselves up to criticism. You know, Paul was being criticized, and it wasn't even true. But I think we need great care about the things that we put on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. The world is watching, more so than ever. Okay, moving on. Verse 3. So he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So I think it's important to recognize that Paul's defense 
in these verses is intended to show up the worldly tactics of his critics. As he talks about his approach to them, what he's really hoping that they will see is that those that have taken his place with them in Corinth are not behaving in the same way. They're using worldly tactics. And he talks about these these weapons that he has. Well, what are his weapons? Well, he doesn't give us many details in these verses particularly. Um, But he does mention them in other letters, other writings of his. And he does demonstrate them. He does live them throughout this letter. So in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, he talks about the full armor of God. And this is what he writes. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will be standing firm. So when you put this on, when the attacks come against you, when things rise up to tear you down, you will remain strong, you will remain firm in God. He says, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For the shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil and put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of spirit, of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this is, the, this is Paul's armor of God. This is the, the, how he ch- tries to live. And Paul describes these in Ephesians, but he also lives them through this letter that we've been reading together in Corinthians. So we just need to engage our memory for a minute. So he talks about the belt of truth. You know, Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies. And Paul wants to clothe himself in truth. And you might remember back in chapter 4, he says, We have renounced the secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. Nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Your breastplate protects your your vital organs from fatal blows. And we only achieve righteousness through Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one that has saved us from death. And remember, he wrote in chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. For shoes, he has the peace that comes from the good news. That means that he, he moves, as he moves into enemy territory, he takes the gospel with him. And remember, again, in chapter 5, he calls us Christ's ambassadors. Those that are to represent Jesus to the world. His shield of faith helps him in his doubts. Remember, in chapter 3, he writes, We are confident in all of this because of our great trust in Christ through God. That's his shield. His helmet of salvation protects his mind and keeps him focused. Remember in chapter 6, he writes, As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and ignore it. Keep your salvation at the front, on your head, ahead of you. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, At just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. And he wants to live in the reality of that salvation every day. And finally, the sword, which is the word of God. Remember in chapter 2, he says, You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. And God is his measure, God is his standard. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the chapter. But the Corinthians, the Corinthians on the other hand, they used worldly weapons. Like I said, Paul is trying to show them up. Instead of the belt of truth, they used the suspenders of manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, they used the sunglasses which reflect the image of success. Instead of the shoes of peace, they used the sandals of smooth words. 
Instead of the shield of faith, they used the bum bag of perceived power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they used the trilby of arrogant authority. And instead of the sword of the word, they used the potato peeler of human schemes and programs. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that these weapons are useless. Useless in the battle that they are in. He goes on to say, doesn't he, we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Don't sacrifice your knowledge of God. Don't walk away from God. Don't be fooled by these things that are not as good as what you have. Don't let these other things lead you astray, but stand firm. Put on your armor. And you know, we, we demolish arguments because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. People can argue about the existence of God until they're blue in their face, but what they can't argue with is the difference that he has made in your life. The testimony that you have. And so he says, we take captive our thoughts. We take captive our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Or as Paul later puts it when he writes to the Romans, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, you know, I think what's happening here is that Paul recognizes, he knows that the, the, the fight is not against the surface things. It's not against the slanderous things that they're saying to him or the names they're calling him or the way they're trying to drag him down. Those, those are merely symptomatic of a heart that is moving away from God. And Paul recognizes that. He says, check your heart, Corinthians. You know, interestingly, the writer of the Hebrews it says it very similarly. It says, the word of God, remember the sword, the word of God, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And often, you know, the battle begins in the mind. And as we allow ourselves to tolerate thoughts of lust or greed or envy or pride or um, unforgiveness, then very soon our actions follow suit. So we need to adopt these new weapons that Paul is speaking of. Let's move on. So verse 7, he says, <clears throat> You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider, again, that we belong to Christ as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I, I won't be ashamed of it. I don't want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say... Oh, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Heed the warning, Corinthians. So it seems um, that, that some amongst the Corinthians had made it personal. They were now attacking Paul um, and, and his demeanor and his appearance and the way he behaved uh, and act. And there's this ancient book that exists. It's called um, The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And it's written about AD 200. And in it is contained a description of Paul. It may or may not be true, but it's the oldest writing we have that provides a description of Paul. So it's, it's quite interesting. And this is what it says about him. He's described as a man of little stature, thin-haired upon the head. An interesting clarification. Um, crooked in the legs, of good state of body, I'm not sure what that bit means, 
um, with eyebrows meeting and with a nose somewhat hooked, full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man and sometimes he had the face of an angel. So that last bit is quite nice, isn't it? But I wonder if that's the image that you had of Paul as you read his letters. Short, balding, unibrow, crooked nose. Actually, I do have an artist rendering if you want to see it. There you go. You'll never see Despicable Me the same way again, will you? But you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I think what was happening to Paul here was no different from what happens today. If we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize it in our own lives. When we, when we take a disliking to someone, we start to look for all the little flaws, all the little faults in them and their personality, and we try and tear them down. Oh, don't listen to them. They're too stupid, too fat too slow, too intense, too crazy. And just like the Corinthians, we can make judgments based on appearances. Paul wants to remind them, he says, if anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. We are all made in the image of God. We have all been bought with a price. Jesus has died for all of us. You might recall Paul's words back in chapter 5. So from, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ that way, and we do so no longer. And you know, the minute we start to judge people based on their appearances, we need to stop ourselves. We need to take those thoughts captive and be reminded that that person is someone that Jesus loved enough to die for. So who are we to criticize them? And in fact, you know, Paul goes even further than that. His comments in verse 8 are just amazing. I love it. If you forget everything today, remember verse 8. He says, So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. The authority that the Lord gave us for building you up. Think about those words for a minute or two. Think about them in in context. You know, he's talked about his weapons, and now he's talking about his mission, his station, the thing he's been called to do. He says he's been given authority from God, the power, the right to build people up. And you know what? So have we. We have been entrusted by God to help others see themselves as God sees them. Let me say that again. We've been entrusted by God to help others see themselves as God sees them. You are commissioned to create beauty in the lives of people around you. I flipping love that. Now he writes to Thessalonians, Paul, he says, says, therefore encourage one another, build each other up. And as the Corinthians, they attack Paul, they try to tear him down, they try to reduce him in the estimation of others, they, they try to point out all his little faults and all the little things that are wrong with him. He turns around and he says, you know what? God has told me to build you up. That's what I'm going to do. God has given me the authority to build you up. What a response. These are not the weapons we're used to, hey? You know, the world's going to tell us to tread on whoever we need to tread on to get ahead in the world to use people, to put them down, to disregard them as nothing. But Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. 
One of my all-time favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. When we fight fire with fire, everyone gets burned. All right? Paul continues. Verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, well, they're not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond the proper limits. But we will continue our boasting, we will contain, confine, sorry, um, our boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us. A sphere, guys, that actually, that includes you. And we're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get to you with the gospel, remember? Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in somebody else's territory, but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So as I mentioned at the start of the talk, um, Paul is the founder of the church in Corinth. He told them about Jesus. He saw God at work in their lives, and now he feels a responsibility to them. He wants to see them stick with God and not throw away their salvation and, 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 and not be recaptured by the enemy. And his comments about not boasting about the work done by others, again, are probably a further comment on the leaders um, that have replaced him in Corinth at present. They're claiming authority over you, but they've done nothing for you. And he talks specifically about the measure. He says that they measure themselves by themselves. That means that they, they look around at each other and think about how well they're doing compared to those that are next to them. Well, you know, I'm certainly doing better than him. I'm more successful than her. I've got more friends than them. I'm more popular, so I must be doing okay. And there's a, there's a cultural aspect to this as well, because um, Paul was a teacher. He was a rabbi, and, uh, and rabbis often had an elevated view of themselves compared to others. In fact, they claimed that respect for a teacher should go beyond that for, than respect for a parent. There you go. Those of you that are teachers have just tuned in, haven't you? They claimed that a parent brings a child into the life of the world, but a teacher brings a scholar into the life of the world to come. Put that on your classroom door on parents' evening. You see, the thing is, Paul wasn't into self-promotion. He wasn't into comparing himself to others either. He had one measure and one measure only, which is why he writes in verse 18, for it's not the one who commends himself who is approved. It's the one whom the Lord commends. Paul's standard of measure was Jesus. It was always Jesus. It always came back to Jesus for Paul. And just before verse 18, he slips in that cheeky quote from the prophet Jeremiah, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I just wonder if he was wanting to bring that particular passage from Jeremiah to the Corinthians' minds for those that knew it, because the, the verses just before that are very interesting. Listen to this. This is chapter 9 of Jeremiah, verse 23. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. 
for in these I delight, declares the Lord. It's in kindness, justice, and righteousness that God delights. Not wisdom, strength, or riches. The very things the Corinthians were complaining to Paul about. Paul says, I won't do it. I won't boast in my wisdom. I won't boast in my strength or my riches or power. But in Jesus, he's my only measure. Because when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we find that we quickly fall short, right? You might think you're an amazing footballer, but what happens when you compare yourself to Messi? You might think you're a great singer, but what happens when you compare yourself to Aretha Franklin? Or a great driver, but what happens when you compare yourself to Lewis Hamilton? The boasting stops. And the same thing happens when we compare ourselves to Jesus. So Paul says, I won't. I won't boast in me, but I will boast in him. Okay, let's bring this into land. So for Paul, the battle goes on. Did you, um, did you catch verse 15? He says, Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity amongst you will greatly expand so we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. He is ready. He is ready to move on. He is ready to continue this fight. He is armed. He is good to go with humility and gentleness, with the belt of truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, with the shoes of peace, with the helmet of salvation, with the sword of the word, and with the authority to build people up and not tear them down boasting in the Lord as he goes. And when I was younger, I used to really, really love um, kung fu movies. I still do, to be honest. Um, but there's always, there's, there's always a scene in, in the movies where the hero goes to train, where he has to learn how to be a ninja or a warrior or a Shaolin master or whatever it might be. And, and, and it always, he goes to study under a master and it always takes place in the form of a training montage. Right, you remember training montage from 80s movies? And it shows the hero practicing with these new weapons, these new skills, and they go from someone who's kind of useless to a master by the end of the montage because they practice and they practice and they practice. And it just made me think this week because in this chapter we see Paul under attack. And as he's under attack, we see Paul's training kick in. He stands firm in his salvation and he responds with gentleness and humility. And my final thought today is how well practiced are we? How well trained are we? How well are we prepared to respond when attacks come in our life? When we are criticized by others, when we are torn down by others? Because, you know, make no mistake, attacks are going to come. We're not promised uh, an easy life. We're not promised that everything will be plain sailing once we get to know Jesus. In fact, if you read your Bible, we'll promise the opposite. So how ready are we? How prepared are we to respond with the new weapons, with the right weapons? Are we going to fight fire with fire, or are we going to drive out darkness with light? Are we going to drive out hate with love? We need to train hard so that we're ready. So how do we train? Well, we practice. We practice. You know, you all know each other. You all like each other, mostly. Why not practice on each other? As you go today, why not go through your phone book and find someone and make it your mission, make it your command from God this week to build them up? How fantastic would that be? Why not go to somebody that you know you have issue with at the moment and be humble and be kind of heart and see what happens and see how God works so that when the real attacks, the hard attacks come, 
we're prepared to stand firm. Shall we pray?